did Broward School Board violate state sunshine law to discuss clear backpacks? How much more heat can Miami expect? And what's the on-the-ground reality in Haiti? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll look at whether the Broward County School Board's closed-door discussions about backpacks and uniforms run afoul of Florida's open meetings rules, and if that's really the security discussion our schools need to be having. We'll also explore just how dangerous climate change is making Miami heat, both for our health and our economy. And I'll speak with a Haitian journalist about how difficult daily life is amid his country's violent security collapse. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. Last week, the Broward County Public School Board confirmed that in recent months, it's held closed-door discussions about school security, specifically about having students carry clear backpacks and wear school uniforms. The board has notified parents that it wants to make those see-through backpacks, purses, and lunch containers mandatory next school year. The uniforms will not be. But the decision has Broward students and parents raising two important, sometimes angry, questions. First, did the board violate Florida's open meetings rules, the Sunshine Law, by conducting closed-door meetings that may not have met the, quote, school security criteria? Second, are clear backpacks really a useful addition to school security tools like metal detectors, or are they just an unnecessary invasion of student privacy? Either way, security is a paramount concern in Broward, where only five years ago one of the deadliest school shootings in U.S. history occurred at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. So what are your thoughts about school security policies like clear backpacks? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or you can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to discuss these questions are Scott Travis, education reporter for the South Florida Sun-Sentinel, and Jackie Luscombe, a Broward parent who heads the Exceptional Student Education Advisory Council there. Scott, Jackie, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Thank you. Hi, good to be here. Scott, you did great reporting on this subject this week, and I just want to start by asking what seems to be the key question here. Under Florida's sunshine laws, did the discussion the Broward School Board had about clear backpacks and school uniforms qualify as a bona fide security issue that allowed it legally to take place behind closed doors? Well, I am not a lawyer, but I would argue absolutely not. Uh, The law is specific on when you can have uh, security discussions and it's designed to protect students and protect the public when it comes to very vulnerable student information that you do or uh, information about your buildings that you don't want the the bad guys to know about. It's designed so you don't want to know where there's a, a, a fence that may be breached or that there's an alarm that doesn't work or, or an evacuation plan. It is related mostly to physical security, and it is not related to something that everyone's going to know about because how can 
a discussion about clear backpacks be a sensitive security issue when you're going to send a note out to everybody saying this is going to happen. It's not exactly a secret then. Yeah. (laughs) So if the Broward School Board did, in fact, violate Florida's open meetings laws here, what are the ramifications? What, what, What could happen as a result? Well, I mean, in some extreme cases, there are criminal penalties, but I don't believe that's the case here. That's usually when you're knowingly doing something really egregious. For the mo- in most cases, what would happen is you would need to uh, cure it, and that means you would need to hold another meeting. Uh, to if any action that was taken during that meeting would be null and void, and you would have to do a- another meeting and get public input and public comment, and then you would have to take final action. Now, before that I raised the questions about whether the meeting was legal or not. They had already decided because of the public backlash yeah. to go on and have a town hall meeting. Uh, I believe it's on June twelfth. Right. And they're and and they be, and then there will be another meeting on June thirteenth, which was planned anyways, which they originally thought was just going to be a formality, which was to approve a code of conduct change that would allow this. Right. But uh, they're saying that those two meetings will. If anyone thinks that these meetings were not legal, uh, these two meetings will cure that. And while they may, in the meantime, we that's three weeks away and they're putting um, information on their website saying this is going to happen next year. People are buying these backpacks. You have uh, organizations that are buying them. You have vendors that are lobbying the school district about this. And what? Really, they should let parents know that, hey, and they're also talking about maybe giving them to parents for free, too, but they have, they're not sharing any of that information with the public. So the public is in the dark about what's going to happen. And a lot of people believe that this is a done deal, that it's absolutely going to happen when there has been no legal vote on it whatsoever. Right. When this went on June 13th, for example, this could all be reversed. It could. Right, right. Jackie Luscombe. Let me ask you, why are so many Broward parents, though, upset that the school board met behind closed doors to discuss this? Well, I think parents want accountability. And when we say we have an expectation of transparency, we don't mean clear backpacks. Open governance and the laws that define it can't be twisted this way and that according to convenience. Going behind closed doors to have a conversation about a topic that was anybody could and should have predicted would be very controversial once it was unleashed to the public um, doesn't strike me as a courageous conversation. It strikes me as a cowardly one. Um, Those difficult discussions need to be had in public. So uh, yes, we want our kids safe. Who doesn't? Um, Are we willing to accept new steps to address safety? Sure. Do we want to be excluded from the dialogue and the Um, the deliberation and decision-making of how far you go with those steps, what should they be, which are the most um, efficient, sensible, rational, and and effective steps, and and which may not. Um, We want to be part of all that discussion. And to my mind, this is the first time I can remember that an initiative of this scale and nature has just been unleashed without any Uh, any dialogue at all. And then I think what has been ultra irritating since then has been the manner in which it's been addressed then in open session at a school board meeting where they were then 
talking about the, right. the, the the controversy and fallout and it was all kind of like nods and winks and well can we say this um you know asking general counsel can we say this or can't we and the kind of knowing nods and winks and and mm -hmm. and the allusion to them having all made a, a kind of pact or agreement behind closed doors that no matter the outcry they would stick to their decision i think that the manner of it has been um outrageous and then of course we have the whole separate issue of do we or don't we want clear backpacks um personally i don't the overwhelming feedback i have from the community and from our stakeholders and parents is that they don't um those uh those who i've heard from who say that they do um favor clear backpacks um have articulated well on it too and just said surely we just consider anything and everything and sure we do but i think you have to look at at uh, how uh, how effective these can be and the fact that there right. is evidence and data and experience that shows that actually this might increase uh, violence in schools or risk to our students that is one of the most worrying discussions well jackie as us. a parent where do you stand on the clear backpack issue in terms of its effectiveness as a school security tool so I like to do my research and do my homework. And um, I've looked around at research on this or evidence or, or the declarations of experts in the school safety industry. And there is nothing I have seen that um, that indicates that, yes, yeah, sure, this is suddenly um, even just a, a fraction of a step towards making our kids safer. And here's the reason why. You imagine you have a clear backpack. Or, or my kid has a blue canvas backpack. Nobody can see in it. But now then you're taking, giving him a, a vinyl backpack and he's got his binders in it, his folders, his books, his pencil case, all his usual clutter. That anything, I think anybody waltzing into a school with a gun or any other weapon in their bag is not going to have it on show on the outside facing part of the backpack. There's mm -hmm. still a lot of concern. Uh, certainly my right. concern would be you can smuggle in anything in a clear backpack and the inconvenience uh, and, and the downsides to it are considerable and they do not, you know, the, right. the merit does not yet outweigh so, um, the risk, so and, the, and particularly the, the bullying risk and violence risk. The argument that it makes it easier for officials like police school resource officers to detect weapons really doesn't hold up under the, you know, the, the, the factors that you've just described then, in your opinion. It doesn't, I think, and, and a lot of the mechanisms around what the thinking is behind these clearbacks haven't been revealed because that discussion was had in public, if at all, uh, right. was had in private, if, if at all. But um, so so what are our kids going to do? Parade past a line of security experts who are all going to be individually eyeballing their backpacks? Yeah. Are they going to have to walk into school and, and line up their backpacks on the floor so that officers can walk around them at 360 degrees? Mm -hmm. We know nothing about this. And what we do know, though, is that our kids' uh, personal effects are going to be on full display mm -hmm. for everybody. And that's going to include electronics. They're going to be getting on the bus and not necessarily a school bus, public transport, walking home through their neighborhoods, uh, walking past strangers with all their their personal effects on show, including right. laptops, gadgets, and in the in So the it's, the, it's, of, the, uh, it's the privacy invasion issue that really is one of the biggest knocks against this then, you'd say. I would say privacy invasion is actually secondary to the fact that there is a lot right, of um, proclamations yeah. from experts that this actually increases really. the risk to our and, right. And, right. And can I add something? Sure, one of sure. the things that really, yeah, yeah, one of the things that really uh, my my jaw dropped when I got this email from a parent who showed me a graphic that of it was like a book that would of look like of mice and men or one of those classics, and then you opened it up and there was a gun inside. It was like a fake 
looking, uh, it was a decoy. And that's something that probably a metal detector would catch, but that's not something you're going to be able to see if you're just sort of like casually scanning what's inside people's clear backpacks. Right. And Scott, let me point out, after the Parkland shooting in 2018, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School did require students to carry clear backpacks. Students and parents and parents pushed back for a lot of the reasons that that you and Jackie have just described, and the requirement was dropped, if I'm not mistaken. So why did the Broward School Board now feel compelled to reintroduce the idea? Well, if you ask them those questions, they don't really give you clear answers. Um, Because I said, you all tried this in 2018. It was a disaster. Everyone said that they were awful. Um, And the superintendent at the time said, we're not going to continue it and we're going to try other types of security measures too. So I was like, what's different now than it was then? And the only types of answers they ever give me is, well, we realize that there is no one tool that will prevent um, all things. So this is part of a layered approach that we're going to do. And it's like these platitudes that we get from them and never anything that says, I've never gotten anything that says, oh, there's been this data that shows. There is one other thing they did mention, and that is that uh, they went to uh, a school district in Texas, I think Dallas, that that were using it. And they were saying that they were observing and it, you know, kids seemed to be doing fine with them and it wasn't an issue and it seemed to work fine. And that was one of the explanations they gave for why they had maybe new information that they could work. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the clear backpack controversy swirling around Broward Public Schools. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Jackie, if clear backpacks are not the solution, what do Broward parents want the school board to be focusing on when it comes to post-Parkland security? I hear a lot uh, of, of two words, metal detectors, metal detectors, metal detectors. I hear a lot of that. Um, I think there is a lot of uh, considerations and discussion to be had about that as well, because I think for any step that you make in security, um, the, the more folks you have in the discussion and the dialogue, the more considerations come up that you're kind of crunching down. Well, have we thought of this? Have we thought of that? And of course, two of the key things that come to mind with metal detectors is one, cost, and, and two, who will staff them? And also, it's going to certainly it would involve children having to get to school way earlier, a lot, whole lot more um, uh, logistical um, uh, uh, backbone that has to go into managing something like that. And you've got to have a ton of staff to actually um, to staff those metal detectors or whatever right. um, system you have. I, I hear a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, I think there are folks on the school board who I think every single one of them is engaged for the good of our kids. I think people certainly appreciate that. And and, and I certainly do. They're, they're trying to think of these answers, these answers to this security question. And it's an enormous question. But I mm-hmm. think um, another thing that they could and should be doing is is um, restoring the school safety task force, which was a body that um, that uh, was closed down in April of last year. I sat on it. We fulfilled our initial mandate, um, which was to review policies and procedures relating to right. uh, violence in classrooms. But part of our work was looking at what are future steps we can take? What is some of the out of the box thinking of how you tighten up security in schools and also how you balance that with mm-hmm. with 
financial considerations, but also the well-being of students and the feel of turning our schools into fortresses. How far do you go? What are some of the other steps and initiatives that you can take to really change school climate and culture and discipline? Right. Well, Scott, so there's Scott, a lot more discussion there. Scott, uh, I, I, going back to the metal detectors issue, the Palm Beach County School Board next door recently agreed to commit more than $2 million to install metal detectors at high school entrances that use artificial intelligence to catch weapons before they're brought in. What's been the, the reaction to that there, if you're familiar with that? And, and is it something Broward County schools might be considering as well? Uh, yes, uh, they, the Broward School District, several folks have told me that is one of the things that is on their list of things that they are looking at. Um, I am really very curious to see how that works out because that's using some technology that is very new. One of the problems that we've had in uh, with metal detectors in the past, as Jackie mentions, is that it can create very long lines of people. I mean, you can just imagine being at the airport in the TSA-like environment. But these uh, metal detectors that they describe are supposed to be completely different, where you don't have to give your, you don't have to put your bag through an X-ray machine, uh, you don't have to take off your keys or your cell phone it is supposed these devices are supposed to be able to use artificial intelligence to know what the difference is between your keys or your cell phone and a weapon yeah. now the question is how well does it actually do and i think there has been some mixed results from uh, that so far from a security mm -hmm. expert that i talked to they are actually pretty good when it comes to guns when it comes to knives it is uh, a more of a mixed bag and they and so they have different security settings where you can set it high and then it's very likely to catch a knife but then it might also catch something else mm -hmm. and they had an issue in i think it was uh, utica new york where uh, a a hunting knife got, that was used in a stabbing got through one of those metal detectors. So they raised the sensitivity setting, mm -hmm. hoped that they would be able to catch that. And they were able to catch knives, but then they detected a seven-year-old's lunchbox as a bomb. Oh, oh, wow. So, Well, we have, we have Armin on the line from Boca Raton. And Armin, you have a child in private school who does use a clear backpack. Can you tell us more yeah. about that? Yes, they use clear backpacks for many years now. I think as far as I remember, two, more than two years. And there's no complaints from anybody, no problems that I can see. And I don't know what the big deal is. I think people are blowing this issue out of proportion. I think the school district has to be commended at looking at other all, all aspects of creating safe environment for kids. It's unfortunate that we have to get to these measures, but I don't see a big issue with it. I mean, the school has had this issue, has this uh, uh, clear backpacks in the school for years now nobody's been complaining no problems with right. personal belongings uh, you can put things the way that they don't they're not out and display for everybody so okay. i i think people are just trying to find right. big problems that doesn't exist well thank you armin and we'll have to leave it there for now uh jackie luscombe heads the exceptional student education advisory council in broward county scott travis covers education for the south florida sun sentinel thanks very much to you both Thank you. Thank you. Still to come, how much more Miami heat can you take? And I'm not talking about the basketball team. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. 
We may complain about the heat in Miami, and the stretch between May and November can be pretty hot and humid here, but it's not considered as dangerous as the sizzling furnace places like Phoenix, Arizona can be. South Florida sea breezes are partly to thank for that. Whatever the reason, Miami is usually spared the 100-degree-plus summer heat warnings we so often see even in northern cities like Chicago. But climate change and global warming may be changing all that. We've all noticed the summers and the moderate winters here are feeling hotter every year. South Florida now experiences an average of 133 days over 90 degrees compared to just 85 days a half century ago. Because of that, this week the National Weather Service lowered the threshold for extreme heat advisories in Miami-Dade County. Mayor Danielle Levinkava even held a press conference to raise awareness about heat-related health risks. But there are also quality of life and economic issues involved. In February, if February in Miami starts feeling like August in Miami, how might that affect tourism? What are your concerns? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me to discuss this heated subject is WLRN Environment Editor Jenny Stiletovich and Miami-Dade County's new Chief Heat Officer, Jane Gilbert. Thanks to both of you for coming on. Thanks, Tim. Jenny, I want to start with you just so we can clarify what happened this week. Robert Molay, the, the, the Chief Warning Meteorologist with the National Weather Service's Miami office, sent us this statement, and I quote, the primary mission of the National Weather Service is to help protect lives through timely and accurate forecasts and warnings. The modifications to the heat advisory and warning thresholds allow us to better serve this critical mission for all residents of Miami-Dade County in South Florida. Now, what does that really mean? Why did the National Weather Service, at Mayor Levine Cava's urging, lower the temperature mark for triggering extreme heat warnings and advisories for Miami-Dade County? Right. So their mission is safety, right? To, you know, to, to, to alert the public when there's a risk. And, and what he told me, I talked to him yesterday, was that they want to align with those increasing risks. So as climate change warms the planet and our temperatures get higher um, and there are potentially more health risk, they want to be able to accurately give the public notice of that. So they are temporary. This is a pilot project. This is not permanent thing yet. Right. Right. They're just trying it out for this year and they're going to see how it works. They're only doing it in Miami-Dade County, no other South Florida places. Mm -hmm. Um, And what they'll do basically is um, when the heat index hits 105, they'll issue an advisory. If it hits 110, they'll issue a heat warning. Warning. Okay. Why, though, traditionally is Miami's summer heat actually not as brutal as it is in other parts of the country. Right, because that is also our rainy season. So when the temperatures get really hot in the afternoon, we tend to get um, thunderstorms and, and rain that cools things off. Um, that's a <laughs> And, and, and that also creates cloud cover that right. tends to, right. And right. we also mentioned the sea breezes that right. we tend to get It's like here. a ceiling fan is on all the time. That's a, that's a nice <laughs> way of putting it, yeah. So that's what traditionally has kept us maybe a little cooler, as I said, than Phoenix during the summer months. So the question is then what's changed? As I mentioned at the outset, we are seeing a lot more days in excess of 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And with Miami humidity, that can translate into pretty oppressive real feel temperatures, uh, often into the hundreds. But what is it that's getting dangerous 
about this new situation? Well, I I think that the danger, well, as the temperatures rise, you know, it is there is a risk. And as we get more of those those hot days, um, people with uh, underlying health conditions, the elderly, you know, they, they may the risk for them could increase outdoor workers. Um, and and so, again, that's what they want to to align with. If there are more of those days that risk increases. I will tell you too, when I spoke to Rob yesterday, they're trying to get a better handle on the Rob stress. Bela- Rob, Rob Moeda. Moeda. At, at the, North, at the right. National Weather Service. So, right. so OSHA and, and uh, the military use a different heat index. It's called the wet bulb globe index, which huh. also factors in wind speed, um, the angle of the sun. Um, it's a better determination of what you feel when you're outside and, and there's a, a heat stress. So that's one of the things that they're also mm-hmm. looking at, not just the, the index that we have been using. But, but bottom line, Jenny, to your mind, when you look at the data in terms of average temperature increases that we've been experiencing, is the increase in temperature that we're talking about really that alarming for South Florida and Miami-Dade County? Well, not compared to other places. Mm-hmm. You know, when we, so Fort Street Foundation, which is a, a, an organization that tracks risk from climate change, did a study last year and looked across the nation. And Texas still leads the, is, 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 for the projections, Texas still takes the top four spots in right. the number of hot days expected in the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. The Midwest, where there are no sea breezes or trade winds, um, they say will still bear the brunt right. of this heat. So, I mentioned Chicago earlier. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. and so what, what Rob Moeda explained to me is that we have a, a more kind of a muted kind of risk, whereas we don't get the those severe heat waves where the temperature climbs dramatically. Right. Just a, a six, five or six degree change um, can increase the risk. And again, they're just trying to, he said, align with with this risk and you know, that, but they want to be careful. They, they worry about warning fatigue. They don't want to overwhelm people. Right. Jane Gilbert, you mentioned at this week's press conference that most heat-related deaths here occur below that standard heat warning threshold that we've been talking about. How does the county go about collecting and documenting that sort of data, important data at that? Yeah, so when... I was appointed two years ago as chief heat officer. One of the first things I wanted to do was better understand how in our unique climate and demographics, the what the health and economic impacts are here by geography and, 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 and demographics. And one of the things that we looked at was excess heat related deaths. And what we found is there is a steady increase when you get over a heat index of of 90 degrees of heat-related deaths, but the vast majority of them happen under either the previous heat advisory threshold of 108 heat index or at the current one of 105. We experience, you might call it muted heat, but I would call it chronic higher heat, we are at risk when heat indices get over 90 degrees, which is Mm -hmm. most of our heat season, which is why the mayor last year announced for the first time that May 31st through October 31st is our heat season. It's longer than what people think of as a summer. And to make sure that we message things that, because because these heat-related illnesses and deaths are largely preventable. So that we're messaging on any 
regular day between May and October that you need to think about when you're going to be outside, make sure you're going to have access to water and, and the same for your loved ones, your employees, the people you serve. Well, as Miami-Dade's heat czar, in effect, what concerns you most about where our region's heat indices, as you mentioned, are suddenly heading, especially when it comes to issues like health risks to people like the elderly, the homeless, outdoor yeah. workers? What kind of precautions are, are we needing to be taking more of now as a community because of this? Yeah, and that's, that's a great uh, point, is that if you live in air conditioning, drive in an air conditioned car, work in an air conditioned space, you're not as at risk. But if you work outside and we have over 300,000, you can be in Miami-Dade County, you can be up to 35 times more likely to have a heat related illness than your average person. Um, the other things in our vulnerability analysis, we found that if you live in zip codes, where there's high land surface temperatures, in other words, urban heat islands, because we're getting hotter, not only because of climate change, but how we're developing as a city. And this is true right. of cities globally. It's not unique to Miami. The pavement but, effect, for example, yeah. Yeah, the pavement, waste heat from buildings and cars, less trees, all of that creates areas with up to 10 degrees higher temperatures than other parts of the county with high tree canopy and less built out environment. Mm -hmm. So so that, for instance, the weather service on one day could be saying that we're going to get a heat index of 100 degrees, but in certain parts of the county, that could be well over our heat advisory threshold of 105. Right. And so people need to be aware of that. And so mm -hmm. outdoor workers, land surface temperatures, uh, families with children and uh, low income areas, just in general, because people right. are walking and waiting at a bus stop, they might work outside, they may not be able to afford that cooling. Right. They, it gets I, more expensive. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about how much hotter it's getting in Miami and what that means for our future here. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. I also want to explore here not just the health effects uh, that Jane Gilbert's just been talking about of more Miami heat, but the potential quality of life and economic consequences as, as well. Um, Jenny, let me start with you because I, I know that you, you've mentioned to me some, some examples of economic considerations here, particularly agriculture, right? Right. So so one of the things I've noticed is that the that the lower temperatures overnight are higher. And when that happens, there's less dew. The dew point um, increases. And that can have an effect on agriculture because um, conditions are drier. You know, they, they, they uh, you know, you get, we just had drought conditions this summer <laughs> or right. this winter um mm -hmm. and 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 we are doing everything we can to hang on to fresh water so um that is that that agriculture factor i think is is a is a big one you mentioned tourism you know right. will people want to come to <laughs> florida in december if it feels like july yeah no that's one of the questions i wanted to ask you as well uh, jane gilbert i mean you know going back to that point if i'm thinking of moving from peoria to south florida does the quality of life attraction get diminished if, as I said before, if February suddenly starts feeling like July here? 
Maybe. We don't know yet. Um, July is actually not too bad if you think about it. If you plan <laughs> Compared to, I should have said August, right, yeah. When, when you're, when you're, when, if you plan when you're out. Another economic impact that we all need to be thinking about is lost worker productivity. And there was a study done by McKinsey and Vivid Economics recently that looked at the Miami MSA area of, of economic impact due to worker productivity loss alone. And their estimate was a current impact of $10 billion annually, with a projected doubling of that by mid-century to $20 billion. All right. And, and could we also be worrying about an out-migration from South Florida because of this? Uh, either of you, Jane or Jenny, I mean, is that also... I think there are probably hurricanes and flooding would, yeah, okay. <laughs> would push people away we'll, first. We'll get, we'll get to that <laughs> as, as well. Um, but going back to something that you mentioned earlier, uh, Jane Gilbert, uh, the financial burdens that might accompany this as well, or that will accompany this, higher FPL bills year-round, for example, if our air conditionings uh, have to work overtime. Um, you know, which which also brings us back to the health considerations. If lower income households start cutting back on AC, um, do we really need to be as concerned about, as I said, the financial burdens that could accompany this? Yes, absolutely. That is that is a piece, and it's we're lucky right now with the Inflation Reduction Act. There are a lot of incentives for people to improve their homes with insulation, with efficient air conditioning, with LED lighting, et cetera, to help more affordably cool their homes. This is the time to be investing in that because it, it will not be getting cheaper to cool your home. But Jenny, going back to what the point you just made, is this really as serious a threat to Miami and South Florida as other climate change developments like stronger and wetter hurricanes are? I mean, to me, the flooding and hurricanes is the chief chief risk. I mean, it is an, an emergency and catastrophic sudden risk. You know, like Jean said, the heat is chronic. I said muted. I, I, I probably should have said chronic. I think that's the word Rob Moeda used, too. So there's sort of a, you know, it doesn't sneak up on you um, as I shouldn't say hurricanes sneak up on you, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so, so I do think, and that the amount of uh, damage, property damage, um, loss of life, uh, comparatively, is 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 still much higher. Um, so, actually, I'm um, uh, property damage is definitely higher with flood and hurricanes. But actually, the number one risk to human lives is heat, more than hurricanes, more than floods more than forest fires, tornadoes in, in the country. South Florida? In, in South, yes. Yeah, I, I think you need to qualify that, in, Jane Gilbert. In, in Miami-Dade County, we lose an average of 34 people a year to extreme heat. We're not losing the, those people to hurricanes and, and, and floods. Can, can I ask where, like, how did you document that? I can show you this study. It's, yeah. Okay, and, okay. and, and, and that sort of thing, obviously, then, could obviously become exacerbated uh, as, as a result of the, of the higher temperatures we're experiencing. Yeah. Very and, much you know, so. when we, we did focus groups and surveys in lower income communities to ask about with community organizations what people's top concerns were related to climate change, and it actually wasn't sea level rise and it wasn't hurricanes. It was extreme heat. Right. Because that's where they're feeling 
the health and economic impacts. But I just to end our segment here, I just want to ask both of you to sort of reflect on uh, how important is Miami-Dade County's leadership in this particular arena in terms of our leadership in general on the climate change issue. Jenny, let me start with you on that. Well, I think um, it's important. You know, we were South Florida and Miami. Miami Beach has always been considered sort of a leader in addressing climate change. We sort of planted our flag in that. Um, and, and I think by having Gene Gilbert named the first chief, first chief heat officer um, sends a signal to, to the rest of the, the country. Right. Jane Gilbert, in the 30 seconds we have left, can you also weigh in on that? How important is this to Miami-Dade County's leadership nationally on, on the climate change issue? I, I you need, Our mayor, Danielle Levine-Cava, wanted to face front head first uh, the whole climate change threat. And really, the my appointment is part of that overall agenda of looking at not only the hurricane and flood risk, but the, the extreme heat risk and how we address the root cause by reducing our greenhouse gases countywide. Right. So we work on those issues in an integrated way to make sure we have, we're addressing the problem with maximum benefits right. on all. So energy right. efficiency, right. tree planting, those kind of things. Sure. Well, thank you very much. Jenny Stiletovich is WLRN's environment editor. Jane Gilbert is Miami-Dade County's new chief heat officer. Thanks very much to both of you and stay cool. Thank you. Still Keep to come, cool. a Haitian journalist takes us on the ground of his country's tragic crisis. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Yesterday was Haitian Flag Day, an especially important observance of Haiti's independence at the start of the 19th century. But this year it was a relatively somber celebration because so much of Haiti right now is under the control of violent gangs amid the collapse of the country's government and economy. It's hard to appreciate how terrifyingly paralyzed daily life can be in Haiti today. This week, I met Samuel Dalmont. He's a part of a group of Haitian journalists visiting Miami at the invitation of the State Department. Samuel's a veteran reporter for Radio Teleguinen in Port-au-Prince. He sat down with me here yesterday in our studios to talk about what Haitians are struggling through now and how the crisis might be solved. Samuel, thank you very much for coming in to talk with us. Thank you, Mr. Tim Padgett, and thank you to all the Haitian family. Samuel, you live and work in Port-au-Prince. Mm -hmm. How bad is the security situation? Okay, in Port-au-Prince, the situation is very, very bad. The police force right now doesn't really have the possibility to save all the area for the people. Right. You know, we don't have a lot of police in Haiti. Right. So yeah. do the people feel any sense of security at all? Uh, they don't really they don't really feel they really have security. The gangs. The, ah, the, the gangs. The gangs uh, just control, control that's the city. The, that's the problem. So yesterday we have um, three police car, armored car. 
armored cars. Oh, armored cars. They burn it. The gang's members in Citaen. Citaen mm-hmm. is in the west part of Port-au-Prince. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gang members burned three armored police cars. What happened to the police officers? They kill of them. They kill of them. Right now, we don't really know the numbers. We don't really know um, how many of them. So uh, all of the police officers in those armored cars that they burned were killed? Yeah, by the gang members. And this just happened on Wednesday? Yes. Would you say that this is a common occurrence, unfortunately, in Port-au-Prince today? Yeah, every day every day we see that. So they don't do nothing to, to stop it. We see that every day. Um, the gang members surround us, you know. What is it like to live in Port-au-Prince each day? Um, first of all, when you start your morning, it's not easy for you to go from home to school or to church or wherever you want. Or it's not work. easy. Yeah, it's not easy to go to work. It's not easy for you to find um, taxi. Because all the zones are under uh, the gang's control. You see what I mean? Yeah. So for that, we are scared. The nation, they are very scared to move from a place to another. It's almost as if Haitians feel afraid to wake up in the morning? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right now, I can describe um, in Kafu Ferry. That's another zone. I live in Kafu Ferry right now. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of gangs surround Kafu Ferry. So you you cannot move. You You stay where you are. Because every day they want to attack all other people around that zone. I know that journalists, particularly radio journalists mm-hmm. like you, Samuel, play a very important role in helping Haitians know where they can safely go mm-hmm. every day. Is that a big part of your work, is telling Haitians, yeah. this place is safe to go, this place is dangerous to go? How, is that part of your daily work? Yes, um, every morning we try to do that, um, to say, um, to talk to the population what kind of zone is safe or what kind of zone under under the gang members' control. So we used to do that every morning Mm -hmm. in Radio Teleguine. Again, yeah, your your station is called Teleguine. Radio Teleguine. The job, doing that job as a journalist, um, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. Do you feel threatened yourself uh, as a journalist in, in Haiti? Uh, not, not really, but it's not easy for you to keep doing that, you know. This week, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres mm-hmm. again urged the international community to intervene in mm-hmm. Haiti. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said Haiti is now like a country that's in a war. Do you think that most Haitians now want the U.S. and the international community to come into Haiti to try to restore public security? Yes, view the, the, the gangs, how they move around Haiti. I think right now, Haiti needs a force to, to help everything. An international force. Yeah, an international force. And you, and you think most Haitians now want that? Yeah, they, they, they need that, really. Mm-hmm. They need that. Despite the history that international <laughs> uh, interventions have had in Haiti, which have never really worked very well, but, but the, the situation is so bad that they, they, they want it. Let me tell you, mm-hmm. the, the people are asking for a force. Right now, the population, they are fighting against the gang members. Uh, right now in Carrefour, the place yeah. I live in, they are fighting against the gang members. Right. You know? They have a movement they call Boacale. You right. know, mm-hmm. so all the all the people with the with the arms, uh, what they can have, yeah. so they fight with the 
with the gang members. This is this is the vigilante movement that we're seeing in Haiti right yes, now. Yes, we can see that. And as you mentioned before, people in communities like Carrefour Fouet, they're fighting back. But there is also criticism mm -hmm. of, of this violence, um, that they're taking the law into their own hands and it's become very violent. Do, do you worry that this vigilante movement could make the situation worse in Haiti? Um, let me tell you, fighting against the gang members without um, weapon, mm -hmm. it's not easy. Right. Usually all they have is machetes and, yeah. and, and things like that. Yeah, right? those things they used. That's why I told you before, they need uh, uh, an international force, you know? So... If an international force came in and was able to stop the gang violence, do you think Haiti then could hold new elections? Uh, new election. Um, new election for this year. I don't know what year are you talking about. This year or next year or... Whenever, uh, if 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 let, probably more realistic is to think next year. No, mm, next year I don't think I don't think so because we have a lot to do. The election. So you think it's more realistic to be thinking about elections in twenty twenty five then? Yes, we can say that in two years maybe. Do you think this civil society group called the Montana Group is a solution uh, to getting Haiti forward to new elections? I don't think so. The Montana people, they are fighting against themselves. Okay. They're, they're fighting amongst they're, themselves yeah, now. Against themselves, okay. you, 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 yes. So that, yeah, that, that's a problem. I also wanted to ask you about immigration. Mm -hmm. You're here studying yeah, how yeah. the immigration crisis is being handled here mm -hmm. in the United States. Haitians, obviously, many of them want to leave Haiti. But you mentioned to me this week that you think the parole that President Biden has offered, not just Haitians, but Cubans, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, that it has been a negative thing mm -hmm. for Haitians. Why has it been negative, in, in your opinion? Um, I say negative because right now, all the professionals, they are leaving, like the doctor, the police officers I, I was talking about. They and, are and, and nurses, you mentioned. And nurses, they are, they are trying to move, leave Haiti to come to the United States. So Through this parole program. So what is the country going to do? Yeah. You know? So you feel the pro parole program is creating just too much of a, what we call a brain drain. Just too many, as you said, professional people. Leave the country. So now we lost the society in that situation. Mm -hmm. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna lose it. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, that, that, that's definitely a consideration that, that we need to think about here, here in the United States. But I have to say also to the Haitian people, don't try to take the sea because they're going to lose their lives. Don't, don't try to get on a boat to come to, no, to the United no. States. They have, um, or, or that you shouldn't do that. Yeah. Right. And because under the new rules, they will be sent back. It's, they will be sent back. They Haiti. say that. And yeah. plus, it's very, very dangerous. It's dangerous. Speaking of the future, though, what is the biggest strength that the Haitians have that you think will help them overcome this crisis? So it's spiritual right now because they don't have a government, you know. So if they have a, a, a strength to go, is spiritual. Uh, we have to restart our life. As uh, the Bible says, a country without justice is not living. No justice, no country. And again, you feel that justice can't come unless there's some international force to come and make that happen. And I don't really know.
but the situation in Haiti is very, very, very bad. So they have to do something. Uh, I think United States is a is a great nation fighting uh, for a better world. You see what I mean? So they have to do this for Haiti. Yeah. But you you have hope. Still have hope because uh, we love Haiti, and then uh, we hope Haiti can do a, a better thing. So. Uh, different than what we are doing right now. Mm-hmm. Right. I hope. I still hope. I still have a hope. Well, Samuel Demont, thank you very much for talking with us. We really appreciate it. And bon chance. Best of luck. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Tim Paget. Thank you so much. Samuel Dalmont is a Haitian journalist at Radio Teleguinen in Port-au-Prince. Finally on the roundup, the Miami Heat and Florida Panthers aren't the only sports show horses making South Florida proud this spring. There's another named Mage who really is a horse, and he's in pursuit of horse racing's triple crown. The chestnut colt won the 149th Kentucky Derby two weekends ago. Here was the call on NBC. The team around Mage has a decidedly South Florida and, appropriately, Latin American feel. The horse is co-owned by Ramiro Restrepo. He's a University of Miami grad who comes from a family of horse racing enthusiasts in Colombia. Mage's trainer is Venezuela native Gustavo Delgado, also of South Florida. The jockey riding mage, Javier Castellano, is Venezuelan too. The derby win was Castellano's first. Mage made his racing debut in January at Gulfstream Park during the richest race in Florida, the Pegasus World Cup. Tomorrow, Mage will try to win the Triple Crown's second jewel at the Preakness Stakes in Baltimore. If he wins there, it's on to the Belmont Stakes on June 10th. Good luck, Mage, and buena suerte. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tue and Amy Sanchez. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateus Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives, answer the phones. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. I'm Tim Paget. WLRN Public Media.